0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station, or if you do miss an episode, just find us online. Go to mncatholic.org podcast or open up your favorite podcast app and search for The Bridge Builder. We do have nearly 100 episodes, so you'll want to make sure to get caught up and click on subscribe. That way you don't miss any of our future conversations. Leave us your comments, your questions, and make sure to give us a five-star rating so that others will find our podcast.
0: We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Church's participation in public life and how Catholics can engage effectively after the election results have come in. In our mailbag segment, we cover a question about the role of faith and Catholic judges. Uh, How should they rule in cases that involve uh, matters that have a direct connection to our Catholic faith and the Church's social teaching? And finally, of course, we want to leave you with practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our Bricklayer segment, we're focusing on the importance of prayer in public life.
1: If you have an idea for our bricklayer segment, or maybe you just have a question about how faith and politics are connecting, send all of that our way. Send me an email to show at showmncatholic.org or leave us a comment on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or in the comments section of the podcast episode.
0: We're now joined on the line by Dr. Russell Shaw. He's the author of more than 20 books, including three novels and volumes on ethics and moral theology. The Catholic Lady, clericalism, the abuse of secrecy in the church, and other topics. One of his well-known books is called American Church, a very, very fine book about the church's engagement in public life and how it shaped the American experiment and how the American experiment has shaped the church in the United States. He's also published thousands of articles in periodicals among the Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, La Servita Romano, America Crisis, Catholic World Report, and many others. For many years, he served as communications director for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and also from 87 to 97, he was the information director for the Knights of Columbus. He lives in Washington, D.C. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the Bridge Builder program. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Say a little bit about your highlights as communications director uh, for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Obviously, that was a, uh, an important time in, in terms of the Church's voice on significant public events, the challenge of peace, economic justice for all, a number of the important pastoral letters that came out during that time. But maybe share a little bit about uh, some of your highlights and, and real positive takeaways from that experience.
2: Well, I think for me personally, the, the, the highlights, the two highlights were uh, Pope St. John Paul II's uh, two pastoral visits to the United States in 1979 and 1987. I was uh, working for the Bishop's Conference at that time, and I was very much involved in the preparations for the Pope's visits and also for in the visits themselves. It was uh, exhausting, but... <laughs> very exciting and very, very re- rewarding work, I must say, being a part, a very small part of, of those great events.
0: Where do you think, from a communication standpoint, the church can do a better job getting out its message when it comes to politics and public policy and political engagement, whether that's as a matter of catechesis with the laity or as a matter of its public witness to public officials for the common good?
2: Well, on the one hand, you know, the church has to avoid any any suggestion of simple-minded partisanship in its involvement in politics and political issues. I, I think if, if the church comes out and sounds like the Republican Party, or, or if the bishops were to sound, as some people at one time said of the bishops, like the Democratic Party at prayer, that... Uh, that, that would, in many people's minds, invalidate and, and what, whatever the Church had to say, and, and uh, people would just turn it off. On the other hand, I, I, I think the Church needs to be uh, putting aside partisanship to be very candid and even bold in, in advocating the things that it feels strongly about, even at the risk of sounding countercultural and sound of, and making itself unpopular in some quarters. I think that's eminently true. For example, of of the human life issues, abortion, and the rest of them, but not only on those issues. The for the, for the church, politics and the involvement in politics cannot be a popularity contest. It's got to be a, strictly dictated by the by values of of the, of the gospel and let the chips fall where they may.
0: One of the things as we are recording the day after the election and and a Biden presidency looks increasingly likely um, because of victories in Rust Belt states with heavy Catholic populations like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. There will be a lot of criticism in some quarters in the church that uh, largely this is the responsibility of bishops and the pro-life movement has received a setback. Because they weren't more forceful in their advocacy, despite identifying as b- abortion as a preeminent moral concern. Um, but at least here in Minnesota, I can tell you that we've uh, worked assiduously to focus on principles and hope that well-formed Catholics who follow those principles and then apply them in the proper context when making voting decisions. How would you respond to that criticism if um, you were still the spokesman uh, for the Catholic bishops?
2: To that, I, I would tend to agree. I think the bishops are a little bit, bit too cautious when it comes to the politics, voicing their views. They're, they're too afraid of sounding partisan, or you know, frankly, they're 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 afraid of you know that's tax exempt status. I can't say begrudge them that exactly, but they can't let their their role in uh, public, the public nation's public life be dictated by that concern. So, on the whole, I I I think maybe the bishops need to be stand up and, and make a little bit more noise, not necessarily in, in the manner of uh, the evangelical pastors who take to the pulpits to, uh, to preach pol- partisan, partisan politics, but rather in, in the manner of, uh, of people who are you know, proclaiming the gospel, and uh, as I said before, proclaiming the gospel at, at, at the expense of the popularity if necessary.
0: What's the proper balance between not sounding partisan in the sense of making almost implying that uh, one had to vote for one party or one candidate, but at the same time being strong on certain moral questions? How do, how do you thread that needle?
2: It's very difficult. I'm not going to pretend that it's easy to do, but I think the answer is by uh, taking a broad view of, of what, what political issues the church is and should be interested in. Of course, the Church is strongly, strongly uh, committed to the whole pro-life agenda and strongly, strongly opposed to abortion, and that's the way it should be. But at the same time, abortion and and the life issues are not the only issues on the political agenda. And I think that as as the Church, it becomes apparent to more people that the Church has a broad political agenda, the less the Church and the bishops are going to have to worry about being perceived as politically partisan or anything like that.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Russell Shaw. He was a spokesman for many years for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, but also served as Information Director for the Knights of Columbus. He's written many books, and we'll dive into a couple themes from those in a moment. But I did want to ask you about the beatification of Blessed Michael McGivney and your role in Knights of Columbus. Why is Father McGivney uh, an important witness for the Church at this time?
2: Well. For several reasons. First, first of all, um, and perhaps least noted at the present time, but uh, but most important, he, he was a good, hard-working Catholic priest. He uh, ran himself into the ground as, as uh, a pastor and, and, and as a uh, a man of the people who, who tried to be of, of direct, immediate service to his people. So I, I would think that, that as a model priest, that's part of it. But also, there's the significant fact that uh, Father McGivney was the founder of the Knights of Columbus, which is the largest and, uh, I guess, in many ways, the most successful Catholic lay organization in the world at the present time. And that's no small thing. Father McGivney was a man of uh, modesty, but great foresight and great courage, because you know the, the Knights of Columbus were not not an immediate success. It, it took a bit of selling, and Father McGivney was out there selling the Knights of Columbus to his fellow clergy for a number of years. So I think on both scores, as a good, hard-working Catholic priest and, and pastor, and as a man of foresight who founded the, the, the biggest and best, I would say, Catholic lay organization in the world, uh, Father McGivney d- deserves uh, our admiration. And now our our, <laughs> our prayers for his intercession as blessed McGivney.
0: Indeed, and the Knights of Columbus are an outstanding organization, the Church, in, in terms of just building building fraternity among men, but also uh, serving uh, the most vulnerable in our community. So uh, a really great time for the American Church to remember the witness and the work of Father McGivney. Dr. Shaw. I want to turn to your very fine book, American Church, uh, which I mentioned earlier that I use in my classes at St. Paul Seminary, an outstanding overview of What Cardinal Gibbons and Archbishop Ireland, uh, the former Archbishop of St. Paul in Minneapolis, what they wrought and a couple of themes of what you call the Americanist position was that there was a fundamental compatibility uh, between Catholicism and the political architecture of the American experiment, and it wasn't just the duty of Catholics to be good citizens, but in many ways to be the best citizens to help the American, the American people understand the genius of the founding, the way in which the founders built better than they knew, and really provide a natural law framework for thinking about that. How has that mentality continued to shape American Catholic engagement? with the American experiment. And, and my second question related to that will be, now that the founding is increasingly uh, come under criticism and deemed illegitimate in many ways by many people, how does the Church pivot, so to speak, in terms of how it talks about things like religious liberty or other important questions?
2: hmm Well, I, you know, the, 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 the Church's view of, uh, of the Americanism question for a long time was, was the viewpoint of assimilation, Men like Cardinal Gibbons and Archbishop John Ireland were Americanists and assimilationists. They wanted uh, the immigrant Catholics to, uh, to become thoroughly going, thorough Americans as, as early and as un- unconditionally as possible. And uh, in their time, the late 19th and in, on into the early 20th centuries, Assimilation made perfectly good sense as a uh, a formula for for American Catholics because the society, the culture into which the leaders of the church were urging assimilation, was in many ways a a, a culture and society with sound sound values to which uh, Catholics could and should commit themselves. The difficulty arose, I think, starting in the nineteen sixties when when the uh, the American culture, at least the dominant secular culture, started to change and to change radically, and in many respects to change for the worse. So many of the old values were jettisoned in favor of a more secularized point of view on matters of sexual morality, the life issues, and quite a few other things. And then the assimilation formula became uh, very questionable, to say the least. was assimilation into a a radical secularizing uh, culture uh, really a good idea for for Catholics or for any other people of religious convictions. Well, I think it it became doubtful at at best that assimilation was was the the route to go, and yet we've continued in that assimilationist vein, despite the problems in, in the culture into which we were assimilating. Now you speak of current difficulties, which Americans, thoroughgoing Americans, are, are having from, from a segment of, of, of our population who are critical of the American founding and critical of, uh, of, the, of the values on which the nation is founded. I think that, that in fact, provides an opportunity for the Church to, uh, to stand up loudly in support of the founding values of our country, equality, the dignity of all persons, sanctity of life, our, our status as human persons made, created in, in, in the image and likeness of God. These are values which, uh, which were at the, at the roots of uh, the American founding. and I think they're values which the Catholic community can and should continue to advocate very, very strongly in the face of those among us who have become radical critica- critics of the, of the American founding and the values on which the nation was was founded
0: gibbons and ireland were strong proponents of the american experiment as a space in which catholics could work freely and and promote uh, with in concert with others the common good the u.s bishop's statement our first most cherished liberty is kind of a modern example of uh, the church recalling uh, the noblest ideals of the founding and pushing back on threats to religious liberty for example is that a good mode of engagement is that uh, continue to be a, a strong public witness you seem to be implying that yes there is something good and noble in the founding in the american experiment we shouldn't jettison that and seed that uh, argument and that there is something worth for the church to continue to build up this American experiment in order liberty, and not simply be ambivalent about it in 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 the pursuit yes, of other means of justice. Really, at
2: a time when it's when it's under under attack, I think by uh, some some elements uh, of of the country, I think it's it's a good time for a kind of new slant on on the, the assimilation question on the part of the church. Let's step step forward and and boldly proclaim our commitment to the founding values of the nation, rather than succumbing to the cheap-shot criticism of those founding values, which is so popular in some circles today.
0: In what ways are there parallels for the American Church today with uh, significant ways of migration and refugees and the time in the late 19th century of Ireland and Gibbons, and uh, the, the folks trying to articulate an authentically American Catholicism.
2: The parallels are very real, but we also have the, uh, the significant difference, which is in some ways a blessing and in other ways a curse, that many, many Catholics have indeed uh, assimilated a <laughs> high degree of success into American society and become people of education, affluence, and, and some influence on, in society. And I think it's now now it behooves us, uh, as people who've made it, if you will, in American society, to use our affluence and our education and our influence on behalf of the values for which the Church and America in its best best lights uh, really stands.
0: Dr. Shaw, you could argue that, or one could argue, that the Americanist position was an early argument for enculturation in the sense that for the church to uh, evangelize America and be a, a strong prophetic voice in public life, it had to be a distinctly American church and not a foreign church. And so you see Archbishop Ireland trying to standardize things in the mass and in the church's life. But do you see parallels with what the Vatican is trying to do in China, in the sense that the deal with the Chinese government regarding bishops is really about creating a church in China that's distinctly Chinese and not simply one that's a foreign import, and that might explain the diplomatic relations between the Vatican and the Chinese government?
2: Well, that's what the Chinese government wants, a a church that's uh, very Chinese. I think, you know, what, as far as I can understand it, the Vatican's policy vis-à-vis China is a policy of, in the first instance, survival. I, I believe that, you know, the, the Vatican's policy may or may not be the correct one, and certainly taken a, a lot of a lot of criticism for, for rather obvious reasons, given given the noxious policies and, and actions of, of the Chinese communist regime. But be that as it may, I think the the Vatican's policy also can be justified, but again, I think the the, the basic ju- justification for what the Vatican has done and seeking a, an agreement with with the, the government is survival. The Chinese Communist government is is not a um, not not in all ways a, a nice operation. I mean, these are pretty tough people when their crackdown on re- religion has been very, very stringent and very serious. And I, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's admirable for, for the people in Rome to try and find a modus vivendi for, uh, for Chinese Catholics, although whether a modus vivendi with those customers uh, now running China, whether that's possible, it remains to be seen.
0: Uh, turning to your most recent book, uh, Eight Popes in the Crisis of Modernity, tell us a little bit about that and what your argument is in that book.
2: Well, modernity, of course, is uh, the, the, the whole modern bo- mindset dating back to the 17th century. And I think uh, at the heart of uh, the, the modern mentality was the idea of progress. You know, every day and every way we're getting better and better, and it, technological, scientific progress uh, above all things. It made sense for a while, but I think uh, that whole way of thinking, that human progress was, was guaranteed as a result of you know, scientific and technological innovations, I think that broke down sometime in the 20th century, and most people no longer think seriously about these things, no longer think seriously about that particular side of, of the, the modern proposition. So, uh, in the face of uh, the, the crisis within, you know, modernism itself, I think uh, the church stepped forward, and during the, the 20th century, as a defender of the human person. You know, that was kind of at the was and remains kind of at the heart of the crisis of modernity, a, a questioning of of uh, the dignity and sanctity of of the. Human person, indeed, a questioning of what is a human person and what value human beings have. How do we relate to another, one another? Where, where do we come from and where are we going? These are all questions of personalism, and I think the Church has become a uh, an advocate of a, a sound and uh, traditional view of uh, the person and, and the values of, of a personalist approach. So that's what it's all about. Uh, modernity has Come a cropper, you might say, on, on this question of the human person, and the Church is now exer- exercising itself in defense of the, uh, the sanctity of the human person, and that, in, in one way or another, that you can be discerned as having lain at the heart of the uh, papacy of eight popes throughout the 20th century.
0: Despite terms like humanism, it seems it's the church that's the authentic defender of humanism uh, in a perhaps emerging post-human landscape with all the biotechnology and some of these other developments.
2: It's a Christian humanism that, that we uh, we stand for, and it's, it's, it's a good and healthy thing. And I think it's you know it becomes more important with passing time.
0: Dr. Shaw, one last question for you. You wrote a very fine piece in Catholic World Report called Rethinking the Choosing of a President— and we're still getting the results from the election today, but what, um, what insights uh, do you have to share? What are your thoughts on that, and what did last night's uh, uh, return so far, what have they uh, encouraged you to conclude about this? What does this mean? How do we rethink the choosing of a president?
2: Well, I think that many people would say, and I guess I would say that uh, with all due respect to uh, Mr. Biden and uh, President Trump, many of us felt that we were confronted with a, an unsatisfactory choice between two very f- flawed candidates for office. I think you know, that suggests to me that uh, maybe we need to take a new look at the whole process leading up to, uh, to the designation of the candidates themselves. I have serious doubts, for example, about the uh, primary system in its present form. It, it, it allows for uh, too too many too many abuses too much too many fringe candidates too much of everything and, and the results are of very questionable value. So I'd, I'd rethink the primary system and uh, and um, may, maybe cut, do what, everything possible to cut back on uh, political advertising. You know my my advice to people with regard to the election was whatever else you do don't don't pay any attention to the political ads. So that's the system you know presented us with, with with what I felt was a a questionable choice this time around, and I hope that some changes can be made in the system to so that in the future we'll have two stronger candidates, both of whom are are are, are, still, are acceptable in all
0: respects. Indeed. Dr. Shaw, you've been one of the great leaders in the church for many, many decades now. We're grateful for your writing, for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today, and for your insights. God bless you, and keep on writing and offering your insights in a whole variety of platforms. Thanks so much for being on the Bridge Builder. Well, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what is in this week's mailbag?
1: Yeah, so it kind of relates to a case heard by the Supreme Court on November 10th regarding the Affordable Care Act, and of course, that was a very big case in the hearings leading up to Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's appointment. And so the question came in, they said, because Barrett is Catholic, what sort of impact should a judge's faith have in making a decision in cases such as this one? But I think that could be brought into really any case. What role should their faith be playing?
0: Well, it's a great question, a complex one, because it it speaks to uh, some of the themes that we were discussing with Dr. Shaw. Can a Catholic be uh, a good American? And for many over the centuries of Catholic participation in public life, there are many who thought that, no, uh, Catholicism was antithetical uh, to American values, not only amongst uh, that view shared among secularists, Um, In some Protestants, but also some traditionalist Catholics as well, is that there is something antithetical between the Catholic faith and the American founding. That certainly hasn't been the mainstream position in the Church for uh, at least since the late 19th centuries, where the Church, led by people like Archbishop John Ireland and Cardinal Gibbons, promoted a mode of constructive engagement that there was a compatibility between Catholicism and their American experiments, and it was up to Catholics to help see the connection and the compatibility between the two. But again, the question is today, as America continues to grow more secular, can a Catholic such as Amy Coney Barrett, can she be a good justice, or will be she imposing her un-American values, her traditional Catholic beliefs about marriage and sexuality most particularly, can can she separate those? How should she separate those? Is she a threat to, quote, modern American values? And I think Justice Barrett makes the point that that she or her job is to interpret the law as it's written and not what she wants it to be. Um, there's all sorts of interesting debates about the role of a Catholic judge, how much they're bound by the text of a law, what background principles uh, or premises they can bring into judging. Um, some Catholic authors promote what they call common good constitutionalism, which is not a strict textualism, but allows for thinking about laws in the context in which they were written, many of which were written in a Judeo-Christian legal framework with natural law principles in the background. So it's, it, these are really fascinating questions. They're certainly a concern among non Catholic Catholics, that Catholic judges are a threat to, quote, American values. But um, there's no Catholic manual on being a judge. And so Justice Barrett will have to work out her own jurisprudence on these questions. And hopefully uh, she follows the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas that, of course, text should control as the intent of the lawgiver. But at the same time, we have to understand uh, principles of equity and broader background principles when interpreting and implying laws. So it's an interesting set of questions for sure.
1: Thanks for helping us dive into that a little further. And in this week's Bricklayer segment, we want to help people to become better missionary disciples, bringing their faith into public life by laying the bricks to build that bridge so that they can really help everyone to understand some of those principles what do you have this week's bricklayer segment
0: well we always emphasize the importance of prayer and you'd be surprised at how receptive public officials are to notes you are praying for them and it's not just important not just sufficient to send them a note saying you're praying for them you actually have to pray for them And so there's a lot of resources that we provide. Um, You can connect with some on our podcast page in this episode today related to prayer resources for public officials. If you join the Catholic Advocacy Network, for example, we send you opportunities for prayer for elected officials, and you can let them know when you do that that you are praying for them through the click of the mouse. You can send a message to your state legislators. But we wanted to offer a prayer after the election. Uh, for peace and serenity, for the common good, for human dignity. Uh, We invite you to join us now as we pray. Let's take a moment to put ourselves in the presence of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God of all nations, Father of the human family, we give you thanks for the freedom we exercise and the many blessings of democracy we enjoy in these United States of America. We ask for your protection and guidance for all who devote themselves to the common good, working for justice and peace at home and around the world. We lift up all our duly elected leaders and public servants, those who will serve us as president, as legislators and judges, those in the military and law enforcement. Heal us from our differences and unite us, O Lord, with a common purpose, dedication, and commitment to achieve liberty and justice in the years ahead for all people, and especially those who are most vulnerable in our midst. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, blessed, blessed, Father Michael McGivney, pray for us. We'll post a link to this prayer on our podcast page. Go to mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, mncatholic.org slash podcast or go to mncatholic.org for more resources. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow us and subscribe so you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click and share so that more Catholics can begin to build a bridge between faith and politics. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. Leave us a comment on the podcast episode. Connect with us on social media or email us at show at mncatholic.org. Send us your ideas for the Bricklayer segment. How might Catholics start to build the bridge between faith and public life? And let us know when you have questions too. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.